Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. I now invite Jennifer Marshall, Senior Visiting Fellow in Heritage's Institute for Family, Community, and Opportunity to come on screen. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon and thank you for joining us today on Heritage Events Live. My name is Jennifer Marshall and it is my pleasure to have you join us for this program on the Biden administration's bureaucratic plan for American families. President Biden recently outlined his plan called the American Families Plan to intended to strengthen America's social infrastructure. But regrettably, what this plan would do is to expand government infrastructure while not addressing the real challenges that American families are facing. Today, we've assembled a panel of heritage experts to dive deeper into the analysis of this plan and to point the way to better strengthen and support American families. I'm going to introduce each one of them as they speak. And so I'll ask Rachel Gressler first to join me on screen. Rachel is research fellow in economics, budget and entitlements at the Heritage Foundation. And prior to joining Heritage, she worked at the Joint Economic Committee on Capitol Hill. Rachel's going to tell us a little bit more today about the child care and paid family leave aspects of the Biden administration's American Families Plan. Rachel, over to you. Thank you, Jen. The American Families Plan proposes some seemingly helpful policies because we all want families to be able to do things like take family leave. We want families to have more options for their kids' education and for childcare because these are real concerns for families. But while it can seem like the government might make life easier for families with these new programs, the reality is, is that families know better than politicians what they need. And everything in the American Families Plan would lead to higher costs and fewer choices for families. And inevitably, the families that don't follow the paths that politicians want them to are going to end up paying for the lifestyles of the families that do fall in line with politicians' preferences. And I know that President Biden has claimed he'll fund these programs by taxing only the rich, but that's mathematically impossible. Even if we were to seize the entire incomes of people earning over $1 million per year, that wouldn't cover the short-term budget deficits much less to even begin paying for what's $4.5 trillion in so-called infrastructure spending. What we're really talking about here is European style taxes where low income earners pay 45% tax rates, middle earners are paying 50 to 70% income tax rates, and then everybody pays a 20% VAT on top of all of that. So it's simply impossible to fund these programs just on the backs of the rich and really it's gonna hit American families. I wanna talk first here about paid family leave. Um, this proposal calls for a new government run program that would provide up to 12 weeks of paid family leave for families. So it sounds great. This would be universal access, so-called, but in reality, it won't be accessible to many people. And for those who do use it, it's gonna be a bureaucratic and burdensome process and it'll be costly for everyone. You know, the goal is to reach more lower income workers 
but government paid family leaves are actually highly ineffective at doing that. They're regressive. They end up, they tax everybody, but it's primarily middle and upper income earners who benefit from them. You know, just looking in the US and California where there's a program that's been around for well over a decade, mothers in the highest income group are five times more likely to receive benefits from the program as those in the lowest income bracket. And it's the same if we look to Canada or Europe, where the programs have been characterized as pure leisure transfers to middle and upper income families. You know, and contrary to the goals of trying to get more women into the workforce and keep them there, these supersized government programs have actually hurt women's work prospects and they've led to lower employment and lower earnings from women. And that's because these government programs aren't the same thing as what we have experienced in the United States with voluntarily provided employer programs. Um, these programs, when they come from an employer and they're at their option of providing them, they're more flexible, they're accommodating, and they're often a lot more generous. But a government program is necessarily rigid and restrictive. You know, already in the states in the US that have these government programs, employers are typically requiring their workers to first go through that bureaucratic process before they can receive the employer provided benefits. And then some companies have done things like cut off their workers' access to their email and to their computer systems while they're on leave out of fear of lawsuits. So that just makes it harder for people to take intermittent time off. Not every leave is a 12-week leave for caring for a child. That's actually only about 20% of leaves. A lot of people need short-term and flexible leaves, just as we've probably most of us have experienced over the past year, um, being able to flexibly work and also care for family members and achieve that balance. And that's not what a government program offers. You know, it, it sounds nice, but the reality is it's anything but that. If you look to Washington State, for example, they have a program and instead of workers simply emailing their employer, requesting the leave off and then getting that, they have to first wait a week after they have a need to take leave. They can't file for that leave until a week later. And then there are workers in Washington who are waiting 10 weeks after submitting all the paperwork to the government to find out if they even qualified for that leave. And so they're having to take out loans to stay at home with a child and not knowing if they even qualified. That's not the definition of accessible leave. And it's especially problematic that this proposal is coming right now when we've already seen this massive expansion in the number of employers that are providing paid family leave. The percentages of companies that now offer paid parental leave doubled between just 2016 and 2020. Now 55% of employers offer paid maternity leave, and that was because of the tax cuts and reduced regulations. It wasn't because of higher taxes on companies, as Biden has proposed. Um, but there are ways that I think conservatives can help increase workers' access to paid family leave through their employers, things like the Working Families Flexibility Act that would simply allow private sector workers to choose to accumulate paid time off. Things like universal savings accounts would be helpful to families in all areas so that they can save in one single simple place without having been penalized for taking that money out. Um, and on the issue of childcare subsidies, this is being sold as an investment, but that's both bad math and it's insulting the parents who stay home with children because somehow if someone else pays for me to send my kids to a government-directed childcare program, that's an investment. But if I sacrifice paid work to spend more time at home with my children, that's a drain on my family's income and it's a drain on the economy. It's wrong to discount the tremendous value of parents investing in children. 
and also to ignore the consequences of pushing children into government-directed childcare. When Quebec established a government-subsidized $5 per day childcare program, yes, it pushed a lot of young women into the labor force, a 15% increase. And it also pushed a lot of children out of family-based care and into government-directed childcare. But then researchers found, and I'll quote here, striking evidence that children are worse off in a variety of behavioral and health dimensions, ranging from aggression to motor social skills to illness. It also led to more hostile, less consistent parenting, worse parental health. And teens who were exposed to the program as children had significantly higher rates of crime and anxiety and lower levels of health and life satisfaction. That is not an investment in children. And the American Families Plan doesn't even address the real problems of childcare being inaccessible and unaffordable. Instead, it calls for new regulations that are going to drive up the costs and drive out smaller and more flexible family-based care. And that's because the subsidies that they're offering will only be available to big providers that comply with the costly new government regulations. It's not going to be the small in-home providers or the church-based childcare that will be able to qualify for these subsidies. What we're really going to get is DC-style childcare, highly regulated centers and big concrete buildings at a cost of over $20,000 per child per year. And simply shifting that cost away from the families who use it and onto those who don't is not gonna make it more affordable. It's just gonna unfairly redistribute income based on families' personal choices. So in childcare, the government's role should really be to support families' personal decisions and not try to make decisions for them. But to help the families who do want or need childcare, policymakers can do things like allowing families to use existing childcare subsidies at the provider of their choice, to be able to take the money that they would use on Head Start somewhere else, making it portable, or eliminating unnecessary regulations that drive up costs and limit providers and limit more flexible options that I think would really be what helps families. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rachel. And no doubt there are questions and follow-up uh, issues that we should pursue. I want to welcome everybody after we hear from our four panelists to join us by in the question and answer session that I'll moderate uh, by stating your question in the chat function. Let's move now to our second panelist, Dr. Lindsay Burke. I'll invite her to join me on, on screen. Uh, Lindsay has directed our Center for Education Policy for the last decade, and she's also the Mark Colacatronas Fellow in Education. Lindsay's going to be talking about the education aspects of the American Families Plan today. Lindsay? Great. Well, thank you, Jennifer, for pulling this together. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. As Rachel alluded to, this plan is extremely heavy on bad policy, and it's particularly heavy on bad education policy, really starting from the earliest years. It would spend a combined $425 billion on early childhood education and care, a figure that likely underestimates the actual cost to taxpayers. In addition to the paid family leave program that Rachel just walked through, the proposal would also spend $225 billion on a new federal child care program that really as she explained, preferences center-based care over the care provided by families and in-home providers. But it would also spend an astounding $200 billion on free universal preschool for all three and four-year-old children. In addition to this likely uh, ending up driving up the cost of preschool over time, 
it's unlikely to benefit participating children. Almost all of the scientifically rigorous evaluations of preschool programs yield the same consistently negative findings over time that any benefits that children seem to derive from preschool fade out over time. If you look, for example, at a randomized control trial evaluation conducted by Vanderbilt University on Tennessee's universal preschool program, which is often cited as a model preschool program for low-income children, that study found that the program failed to produce any sustained benefits for participating children and actually had some negative effects. Although the children participating in the pre-K program had initially shown some positive results, the effects quickly faded out over time. As the study researchers found, first grade teachers rated the children who participated in that program as being less prepared for school. They had poor work skills in the classroom. And overall, they actually felt more negative about school. And as they state in the study, quote, it is notable that these ratings preceded the downward achievement trend we found for voluntary pre-K children in the second and third grades, end quote. And that's the gold standard of preschool programs across the country. Now, I would note there's actually a brand new randomized control trial evaluation of a preschool program that just came out last month. Uh, this is from Boston, and that study did find a six percentage point increase in graduation rates for preschool participants. But as with other programs, the Boston program had no effect on academic achievement as measured by standardized test scores. So it is notable how much these programs end up looking like what we just heard from Rachel, the Canadian experience with childcare and preschool. I think what the program that we hear about in the American Families Plan from the Biden administration, I think what that is likely to look much more closely like is the failed Johnson Error Head Start program. Head Start has had no long-term impact on the cognitive skills uh, or abilities of participating children. It has failed to improve their access to healthcare. It has failed to improve their behavior and emotional well-being. It's failed to improve the parenting practices of participating parents. And that's according to randomized control trial evaluations conducted by the Department of Health and Human Services that manages Head Start. So I, I think any new large scale federal program is much more likely to resemble Head Start. We, the modern research on preschool that we hear about uh, a little less frequently than Head Start uh, shows that there is little benefit to participating children. It is negative, as I mentioned, on balance. But we continue to hear proponents of universal preschool appeal to uh, two studies, one of which is the Perry Preschool Project that was conducted 60 years ago. This was a boutique preschool program that provided around-the-clock interventions to the 58, only 58 children who were in the experiment group in that study. And the Perry Project did find positive outcomes, but as education scholar Russ Whitehurst has said, if you try to generalize from this program that took place more than 60 years ago, which is 58 children, that that would be, in his words, a prodigious leap of faith. And a few years ago, the Wall Street Journal actually had an article in which they said that the lack of impact from preschool is about as close to an intellectual policy consensus 
as Washington gets. So again, I think we're unlikely to see benefits for participating children, and yet this will, of course, as Rachel noted, come at great expense. We also have to consider the fact that when you have these large-scale government preschool programs, they end up crowding out the private provision of care. Private providers have to compete with free government programs. And when the private provision of care is pushed out of the market, that ultimately means fewer choices for families. There's also the question of demand for a program like this. About two-thirds of four-year-olds and about half of three-year-old children already have access to pre-K. And if you look at the survey data on maternal preferences for childcare, about half of all women who are employed and have children under the age of 18 would prefer to stay at home with them when they are young. So we, we have a lot of questions around the pre-K provisions that are there that require answers before moving forward. Um, I do wanna to quickly touch in the remaining minute that I have on what is in the K-12 space and the higher education space in this American Families Plan, uh, because unfortunately, uh, both are also included and have significant new spending. There's a $9 billion uh, program in this plan to train teachers. That's the language used uh, in, in the proposal. Uh, to train, equip, and diversify American teachers. It goes without saying that it is, the, um, it is the purview of local school districts, not the federal government, to prepare teachers for the classroom. And in the higher education space, this plan is really just a massive liberal wish list of policies. It includes, among other things, $109 billion for free, all of this free stuff is quite expensive in this plan for free community college. Uh, and more than half right now of community college students already pay uh, no uh, funding or pay no cost for their tuition under existing federal aid. Uh, in addition to the $109 billion for free community college, this plan also includes another $62 billion for community colleges to try to increase their retention and graduation rates it would also spend about $80 billion on the federal Pell Grant program over the period of the American Families Plan and has another $46 billion for HBCUs and minority serving institutions. So if you look at all of the subsidies that are part of this plan for higher education, whether it is free community college or increases in, in Pell funding, the Biden administration is really pursuing initiatives that would subsidize rising costs rather than pursue policies that would actually address the drivers of college cost increases. So I will stop there and hand it back over to you, Jennifer. Thank you. Thanks so much, Lindsay. And we will turn now to the healthcare aspects of this plan. Doug Badger is with us and I'll invite him to join me with uh, his webcam. Hi, Doug. Uh, Doug is a senior visiting fellow in the domestic policy studies team. He has extensive experience in uh, on Capitol Hill, in the executive branch and in the private sector on healthcare and related domestic policy issues. And he'll be addressing the healthcare aspects of the American Families Plan. Doug. Thank you, Jennifer. Uh, this will be one of the rare presentations where the spending on healthcare is actually smaller than uh, spending in other bills. This uh, proposal in the American Families Plan would uh, cost somewhere between 200 and 400 billion dollars over 10 years, um, a mere pittance uh, compared to some of the others we've heard about. 
To understand how this works, the uh, Affordable Care Act, ACA, of course, created subsidies, uh, premium subsidies for people with incomes between 100 and 400 percent of the federal poverty level. These subsidies come in the form of payments directly from the United States Treasury to insurance companies who cover these people. The American Rescue Plan Act, which the president signed into law in March, expands the, uh, these subsidies on a temporary basis through the end of next year in two ways. First, with respect to people who already have subsidized coverage through the exchanges, those subsidies, those payments from the treasury to the insurance company get larger. Secondly, uh, the uh, Re American Rescue Plan Act removed the income limit. So regardless of your income, you are now eligible for premium subsidies for exchange-based coverage. Those two changes, as I mentioned, are due to expire at the end of next year, December 2022. The American Families Plan is a proposal by the administration to uh, make those changes permanent. Uh, to, to drill down on this a, a little more, um, as I mentioned, most of the money that would be spent, according to the Congressional Budget uh, Office uh, analysis, would be on behalf of people who already are insured. Some of them are already getting exchange-based coverage with the subsidies. Others are more wealthy in the top two income quintiles and paying for their own insurance. They would now have the government pick up a portion of their premiums and others might migrate from, uh, from other forms of coverage. According to the Congressional Budget Office um, analysis, next year, um, actually fiscal year uh, 2022, when you would have a, a full year of these expanded subsidies, you would only reduce the number of uninsured by about 1.3 million. So the spending on that program next year will be about $17,000 in government payments per newly insured uh, person. I want to lay out quickly six reasons why making these uh, temporary increased subsidies permanent um, are a bad idea. First, it's a costly solution in search of a problem. The reason Congress expanded these subsidies temporarily was that they assumed that millions of people lost coverage last year as a, a result of the uh, pandemic and the resultant lockdowns. Actually, analysis by my heritage colleague Ed Heiselmeyer found that 5.7 million people, more people, had coverage in December of 2020 than had coverage in December of, of 2019. So the idea that there were all there was a, a a great influx of uninsured people and Congress needed to to increase Obamacare subsidies to help out simply uh, is a false one. Second, as I mentioned, most of the spending goes on behalf of people who already are insured. It's an inefficient use of government funds uh, to 
spend more money on people who already have coverage. If you're going to spend more government money, it should be targeting people who don't have it. Third, it, it really benefits the wealthy. Most of the newly, uh, uh, the people who actually begin to get subsidies under uh, th this expansion are, are people who are in the top two income quintiles. That's especially true of people in their 50s and 60s because Obamacare premiums rise with age and subsidies rise with those premiums. So the beneficiaries are among uh, the uh, most comfortable households uh, in, in the country. Um, a family with uh, two dependents uh, where uh, both the uh, both the spouses are 60 years old, uh, if they have income of $106,000, would qualify for a, a subsidy of about $20,000 per year under the temporary subsidies. These should not be made permanent. Fourth, it's a boon for insurance companies. I'll say again that the government pays subsidies on behalf of people who enroll in exchange-based coverage, but it pays those subsidies to insurance companies. One of the reasons why premiums more than doubled, they rose by 129% between 2013 and 2019, is that insurers realized the higher the benchmark premium, the greater the subsidies from the federal government. Those subsidies rise dollar for dollar with increases in, in benchmark premiums. Not surprisingly, insurance company profits rose with those premiums. According to an analysis by the Kaiser Family Foundation over the first nine months of last year, the margins insurance companies made on individual health insurance was about $158 per enrollee per month. Compare that to group health insurance, then, which was only $92 per member per month. One difference between the two is the government subsidizes uh, premiums, uh, makes payments to insurance companies for those with individual coverage, but not to group coverage. To give you an idea of how this works, according to uh, the statistics provided by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, over the last uh, uh, over the first six months of last year, nearly 75% of insurance company revenues, these are insurers who are selling on the exchanges, nearly 75% of their revenues came from the federal government, not uh, from people with insurance. So high margins, government subsidized, let's not uh, increase them uh, or make those increases permanent. Fifth, as you might imagine, uh, if you have a circumstance where uh, payments to insurance companies rise dollar for dollar with benchmark premiums, and where the individual uh, who is getting insurance is paying only a tiny fraction of those premiums, both of those have an inflationary effect on premiums. The idea should be to bring premiums down, not use government subsidies to support high premiums and drive them higher. And finally, one of the uh, problems with making them permanent is the, the possibility that, in, that employers will stop sponsoring coverage for their employees. The CBO, in their analysis of the temporary extension, said, quote, 
that they would not anticipate that many employers would change their decision to offer health insurance given the temporary nature of the enhanced subsidy, end quote. If you make these permanent, you are giving employers, particularly small employers who are exempt from the mandate, a real inducement to send their uh, workers out onto the exchanges and get have the government subsidize their health insurance rather than having job-based coverage. So this is based on the false premise that millions of workers and their dependents lost coverage due to lockdowns. It poured almost all resources into subsidizing the premiums of people who already had insurance. It made the nation's highest earners eligible for government premium assistance. It enlarged federal payments to insurance companies in one of the most profitable lines of business and created perverse incentives to inflate premiums. And it, a permanent, making all of these changes permanent would not only double down on these bad policies, but could also result in millions of Americans losing their employer-based coverage. We think Congress can do much better. Uh, we've uh, uh, advanced the Healthcare Choices Plan that uh, attempts to put doctors and patients rather than government and insurance company bureaucrats in charge of healthcare. Instead of pouring more money, more government money into premiums, the plan will make premiums more affordable. According to an independent analysis by the Center for Health and the Economy, premiums would drop by up to 24%. The number of people with private insurance coverage would increase by about 4 million. Plans would offer a greater choice of, doctor, uh, of doctors. The Healthcare Choices Plan would also expand HSAs in a variety of ways, including allowing proceeds to be used for direct primary care and for health uh, sharing uh, ministries. Uh, we think that instead of subsidizing high premiums and rewarding companies that profit from those premiums, we should move with a market-based consumer-driven approach that will make healthcare uh, more affordable. Thanks very much, Doug, for overviewing the, the healthcare aspects of the plan. And I just want to remind everyone that we welcome you to participate in this conversation by submitting a question via the question function in the control panel. You can go ahead and do that now, and I'll be able to uh, turn to those during our discussion after our final panelist, uh, who will be Leslie Ford. I'll ask Leslie to join me on screen. Leslie is a visiting fellow in domestic policy studies, specializing in welfare. Uh, she's previously worked on welfare issues on Capitol Hill and in the White House, and we welcome her now to speak on the welfare aspects of the American Families Plan. Leslie. Thank you, Jen, and thank you everyone who's uh, joining us today. Today I'm going to talk about the enormous expansion of the welfare state that we see in the Biden administration's proposed American Family Plan. Advocates are claiming that these welfare expansions will reduce poverty, particularly child poverty. But in fact, these new policies will take more parents out of the workforce. They may increase single parenting, and they're most likely going to lead to fewer children experiencing intergenerational mobility. All of that is very concerning. So first, I'm gonna walk through uh, how it's doing it. First, the Biden plan wants to permanently ex extend the transformation of two tax credits the child tax credit and the earned income tax credit. They already changed these two tax credits in the COVID stimulus that passed just this past March, but they had only uh, changed those for a year. The Biden family plan wants to make these two changes permanent. And if they did so, 
this would constitute the second largest expansion of the welfare state in U.S. history. And this is, these changes would be layered on top of the nearly half a trillion dollars dedicated every year to the safety net for low-income American, American families with children. In real numbers, this would be nearly $80 billion a year in welfare checks to families uh, with children. That over the 10-year window, if these were made permanent, that's $1.6 trillion. It's a lot of money. And like I said, it would be the second largest expansion of means-tested welfare entitlements in U.S. history. In constant dollars, the annual cost would dwarf the initial cost of Medicaid, of food stamps, of aid to families with dependent children. Only Obamacare would be more expensive. It's a lot of money. But the worst part of these new programs, of these changes, and the thought that I really want to leave you with today is that it may not help low-income Americans in the long term. In fact, it may make things worse for low-income children. First, I'll talk about the child tax credit, which was transformed into a child allowance, and then I'm going to briefly discuss the earned income tax credit changes. That's, I'll abbreviate that, abbreviate that to EITC. So, this uh, March uh, COVID stimulus, it changed the child tax credit. Many of you have probably heard of this before. It's pretty simple. When you file your taxes for every child that you have, you pay $2,000 less in taxes, or at least that's how it used to work. Starting in July, now what used to be the child tax credit is a child allowance. For every child you have, you get a $300 monthly check if they're under six. It's $250 if their age is six to 17. This isn't paying less in taxes. This is a welfare check now. And this is on top of whatever they receive in food stamps, Medicaid, WIC, TANF, et cetera. All of those are welfare programs. So it's rare in policy that we're able to project outcomes based on national history. But by transforming the child tax credit into a child monthly check, we actually have direct history to point to. We've been down this the road of unconditional cash ben benefits without work before. And we know that this, this policy will harm low-income Americans because we've seen it before. Before the 1996 reform 25 years ago, uh, the aid to families with dependent children operated very similarly to this Biden plan. It was monthly cash payments and it didn't expect low-income parents to work or even prepare for work through education or training. And the results were terrible for low-income Americans. Nearly nine in 10 families were workless. Most families were stuck in long-term poverty. The majority of families were on benefits for over eight years. And we saw unwed births rise year over year for decades. And all of this made intergenerational poverty worse. One in seven kids in the US were dependent on the program. It was because of these reasons that Republicans led the way to transform the safety net. They did so with the, the signature of President Bill Clinton and the vote of then Senator Joe Biden. For the first time, recipients had to work or prepare for work in order to receive cash benefits. And we know the results. Even though the left asserted that poverty would increase as a result of the 96 reforms, we witnessed the exact opposite. Dependency declined for the first time in a half century, and employment rose, particularly among single women who didn't graduate high school, many of the recipients of the program. The most important fact to walk away with is that child poverty, which had been static for decades, fell sharply. So there are claims on the left that the Biden family plan will 
decrease child poverty significantly. But there's, we know what the real worry here is that this child allowance will actually increase child poverty in the long term. Why? Because in the Biden plan, all obligations are on the taxpayer and society. Recipients don't have to work or prepare for work in education or training that would help them return to the workforce. Our, the U.S. experience with uncondi unconditional aid is clear. When you subsidize non-working families, you generally get more families trapped outside the workforce. In addition, this policy may also increase single parenting and thereby undermining the chance that a child will be raised by a married mother and father. All of this leads to the conclusion that more low fewer low-income children would experience intergenerational mobility. Any of these results are unacceptable. Um, before I end, I also want to briefly summarize the other tax credit program, the Earned Income Tax Program. Normally, EITC is one of our more effective anti-poverty programs. It usually targets low-wage parents with children to support. These parents are working, and when they work more, they receive more in the benefit. However, the Biden plan also wants to send these funds to workers who don't have children to support. They would give them $1,000 a year. This will cost about a little over $7 billion a year overall. And like the CTC changes, the child tax credit changes, uh, the, propo the proponents will claim, are claiming that these EITC changes will reduce poverty and encourage employment. But we've actually performed experiments that did exactly these changes in New York City and Atlanta. And both of those experiments failed to reduce poverty or increase employment. So we'd be spending a lot of money and not getting anything back. There's a better path forward here. We should address poverty and the challenges working families in this country face. Instead of this expensive and ultimately counterproductive policy, policymakers and Congress should orient more of our low-income programs to promote work either through work or actively engaging beneficiaries in effective employment and training programs. They should also end disincentive to the marriage found throughout our programs, but particularly in food stamps and the earned income tax credit program. This is how we seek true opportunity for low-income Americans and bring them more fully into our society. Thank you so much, Leslie, for overviewing the welfare aspects. And I'd now like to invite all our panelists to join me on screen and we'll have a conversation uh, across these issues. I, I wanna invite our audience members to join us in this conversation by submitting a question uh, in the control panel for GoToWebinar. I'll kick us off though with a few questions. You've each delved deeply into the subject matter of your expertise. And that's been very helpful. These are very uh, detailed plans and we're only skimming the surface, of course. But I'd now like to draw some uh, cross-cutting themes uh, that, that go through each or almost all of these issues, beginning with the fact that uh, we, of course, at the Heritage Foundation are extremely interested in pursuing policy that helps American families to thrive and flourish and that we believe that America has been built on strong families and hard work and, and government policy should uh, encourage those things. Uh, can, can I just ask you to comment on uh, the aspects of the plan in your area, and I'll go through uh, uh, at least three of you, uh, if not all of you on this, 
the the issues in this plan, American families have a diversity of needs and a variety of preferences about how they will meet those needs, particularly in, the, in these arenas that are really close to home. They are the closest to home in many cases, healthcare and education and childcare. And, and yet this is a plan that doesn't, can't recognize, is, is not capable of recognizing the diversity of those needs in, in many respects. And so I, I wonder if I could just ask particularly Rachel and Lindsay and Doug to comment on that aspect in your arena the kind of diversity of, of uh, needs and preferences that you see and why this plan is inadequate for that. Rachel, start with you. Yeah, I can start out. Um, and the problem here is that there is so much diversity across families. Not only do families have different preferences from one another, whether it's that they want somebody to be home full time, there are also single parent families that don't have that options, but it's also diversity across a lifespan. Um, so things that families need when they have young children are not the same as what they need when they have children in college or when they're empty nesters. And so to try and implement one size fits all programs doesn't actually end up meeting a lot of families' needs. And I think this past year has been a perfect example. There was so much need for paid family leave, for new types of childcare situations. And this is how we see that the government actually getting out of the way and removing barriers to things like family co-ops or you know down the street sharing childcare with a family there or a church center opening up are far better solutions than implementing new regulations that drive up those costs that factor into you know, small in-home providers, the number of them has fallen by half over just 15 years recently. And that's because of all these regulations. And that's what the American Families Plan is offering more of. Most families don't wanna drop their kid off at an institutionalized type childcare center. Most families don't wanna to have to go through a bureaucratic process and file all this paperwork in order to take two days off as a family member's having surgery or they just need to be home with a child. They want more flexible situations that work for them. And that involves the government getting out of the way. And there are lots of policy um, proposals there that can help. I mentioned some of them, Working Families Flexibility Act, Universal Savings Account, getting rid of all these costly regulations on childcare providers. There are lots of solutions and it really has to do more with giving families back more of their own money and opening doors and opportunities to them. Yeah, I, I would concur with everything that Rachel just said. And and I think a theme that we've all brought out today is just the extent to which there are very few aspects of family life that, that this plan doesn't try to replace with, with government services. And this is problematic for all of the reasons that we've described today, but I think one of the, the big reasons is that when you have these distant federal programs, be it at the preschool level or in the K-12 space or even at the college uh, level, these distant federal programs tend to be much less responsive to the needs of families than uh, options that are situated closer to the children that they impact. And we can see this over and over again. I think it is one of the big reasons why, unfortunately, we see so much failure in these large-scale government programs like Head Start. And Jennifer, you're right, there, the variety of things that families want in education in particular uh, we know we can look at the K-12 space in particular for evidence on this, but we know from many, many surveys of parent preferences that when you ask families what they want when it comes to their children's education consistently, after school safety, that's always the number one concern, is my child safe at school? 
But number two is always, does my child's school reflect our family's values? And does it really do what it needs to do in terms of delivering on my child's hopes and dreams and aspirations for the future? Those are some sort of intangible outcomes that families look for that are very difficult for government programs to establish and certainly uh, difficult, if not impossible, for them to deliver. And so I do think so much of it comes back to situating these programs far away from the families they impact. And of course, when you have these programs established uh, and managed at the federal level, it's very difficult to make changes to them to correct course when course corrections are needed, et cetera. So uh, I would just add to that, that list uh, some of the additional problems that, that I see with these approaches. Doug, anything you'd like to add to that? Yeah, uh, again, as with healthcare, uh, there are um, people are in different circumstances, have different needs, but there are some commonalities, right? Um, if you talk to people about their something that's affordable, they want something that um, allows them to see the doctor that they want or their children's doctor in the case of a pediatrician, and they want peace of mind. If they're stuck with very high medical bills, uh, that um, they would uh, have the insurance there to uh, to protect them. Obamacare really doesn't deliver any of that stuff, right? Um, and one of the uh, real uh, messages behind the Biden administration's push to increase the subsidies is really an admission that nobody wants to pay the premiums for this stuff. It's basically high deductible Medicaid. Um, it's narrow networks where you don't have uh, the best providers actually taking patients. Um, it's high deductibles and high cost sharing and high premiums. So the Biden administration proposal is, okay, well, we'll have the government pay the premiums and then you'll, and then you'll want it. Uh, if you want to give people what they want, you've got to give them more choices in the marketplace. You've got to let individuals decide what's best for them what's best for their families and not have the government send you a take it or leave it policy and offer to uh, help pay the premiums. Thank you. Well, it's certainly uh, the case that we, each of you commented on the costs and that the price tag of this whole thing is 1.8 trillion. And that has to be considered in line with the many packages that have already been enacted to uh, huge costs to future generations, higher taxes, that will mean high, uh, higher uh, deficits and debt. Uh, so very significant impact on American families in that regard as well. Um, I wanna draw the, the, the cross-cutting theme as well that uh, many of you commented on the fact that the kinds of proposals in this plan are uh, driving costs up in each of these areas and then subsidizing those higher costs. And in, in many cases, uh, uh, the benefits are going to special interests as well in the, in the course of that. Uh, so this is quite a bit, uh, we would say, veering wide of the mark of doing what is in the best interest of American families for the near term and the long term. And um, 
uh, I, I do want to, uh, there's been a couple of questions about whether these excellent presentations that have so much detail are summarized anywhere. Uh, in the chat, we've posted one of the backgrounders that these heritage experts have contributed to, and you can click to that link. You'll also find much more commentary about the American Families Plan on the Daily Signal. Um, let me let me turn uh, to Leslie and just ask for a, a follow-up to put this in perspective. We are um, sadly and ironically at the 25th anniversary of the welfare reform of 1996 and yet um, uh, about to unlearn those lessons and it, if you could just uh, restate and maybe expand on that aspect of uh, here we have uh, the child allowance proposal and we've had some questions about that uh, really kind of um, uh, blurring the lines between a number of issues and uh, could you just restate and expand on your thoughts with regard to what is most important for uh, those recipients of welfare uh, with respect to this child assistance and, and why it's missing the mark of, of these lessons that we learned so, so long ago? Sure. So before 1996, we saw a large number of families uh, receiving cash assistance. And the real concern was that they were on cash assistance for a very long time. An average, the majority were on an average of more than eight years. And that really, it puts a ceiling above how far they could progress in American society because that is all they ever received was that cash benefit. Because we are giving that cash benefit without any conditions, they didn't have to work, they didn't have to participate in education, they didn't have to participate in any job training. The bottom rung of the ladder of opportunity was truly cut off for these Americans. And the program before 1996 had been operating for 50 years. And we saw the outcomes get worse and worse. The majority of parents, they weren't working. Nine and 10 weren't working. And children, followed in the steps of their parents, and we saw intergenerational poverty increase and increase. So afterwards, after the 96 reform, the major change in the program, it changed from AFTC to TANF, Temporary Assistance to Needy Families. The major change was that participants were required to work or prepare for work. This could be 20 hours a week of education, of that's a part-time job. And among single women who didn't graduate high school, we saw them moving out of poverty. It wasn't even that they were cut off from the benefit, it's that they had opportunity, finally. And that's why we saw child poverty, especially intergenerational poverty, decline like this. What we're doing here is we're going back to the same thing. We're saying to a single woman, especially a young single woman who has a child, here's a cash benefit, you don't have to do an, you, that you don't have to begin to climb the ladder of opportunity. And when we do that, we know we're going to see more intergenerational child poverty. Um, Jennifer, there's also one other thing I wanna to touch on that's particularly concerning about this child allowance. It's available to anyone who, uh, any household that makes under $150,000. That's a lot of money. This isn't just low-income Americans. But how, it, how the child credit used to work is you just pay less in taxes, 2,000 less per child. Now, anyone who makes under that $150,000 mark will be getting a monthly check per child. This is going to increase the veneer of dependency in this country. Instead of you getting a check from the money you make at the job you're at, the, the government is gonna be taking that money from you and sending you a monthly check. That is extremely concerning in this country. So just wanna end with that. And if I could just jump on top of that to talk about the costs here. 
you know, it's not just that we're taking away options for families, it's that we're bankrupting future children. And I think of my six kids and the fact that each one of them owns $67,000 worth of the national debt already, and that's on pace to increase by $4,000 per year over the next decade before we add on this American Families Plan. You know, I would not take out a loan in my children's name in order to send them to universal preschool or so that I can get monthly checks in the mail to support them. And if that's not something that Americans would do, then we shouldn't support the government doing it in our children's names. Thank you. Uh, one of our one of our listeners has commented on the fact that there seems like there's an inherent contradiction of disincentivizing work through the expansion of the welfare state by offering greater unconditional cash benefits without work requirements. And then on the other side uh, of one of the policy proposals, you have uh, the, the claim that increased access to pre-K is going to promote keeping more women in the labor force. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll let that uh, comment stand. Uh, but the, uh, there's also several comments about uh, this status of this plan. And of course, right now it's log jammed in the midst of uh, the many other proposals that are out there in Congress. Uh, but what are, what are some of the things that are impacting the debate or that you see impacting the conversation about this uh, across the country? Are there, would anyone like to comment on that with regard to um, the, the salient points that, that may affect the, the course of this debate? Well, I'll say one thing on the, the higher ed piece, which I didn't talk about that much, but there is this um, proposal for, as I said, $109 billion to make community college free. I think we have to keep in mind that there are also these parallel calls to forgive student loan debt. We hear that over and over again. I think we have to keep in mind it's not just this American Families Plan right now that we're, we're hearing calls for, but all of these broader uh, calls on the part of, of not only this administration, but uh, some other folks to completely forgive student loan debt. And I think that backdrop, if we think about where student loans stand right now, because of COVID, uh, every student loan, the repayments are paused on federal student loans. So if you have a federal student loan, you don't have to make any payments now until October 1st of this year. I think as we get closer and closer to that October 1st uh, repayment deadline, we're going to hear those calls increase for more student loan forgiveness, uh, that that's gonna get a little louder. So I offer that just as more context for all of this spending. And I don't think I said, but the, the spending in this proposal just on education, it really is, it's breathtaking. <laughs> in addition to all the other points everyone's made just on education, this is $748 billion in this plan. I mean, that that is 10 times the discretionary budget of the entire Department of Education. And that's in addition to what the Biden administration has proposed in its first infrastructure plan, which is $260 billion for education. And then it comes on top of the $282 billion that was already spent uh, additional last year in the three COVID spending packages on education. So it really is, I, I don't think there's another word to describe it other than breathtaking, but wanted to offer that sort of policy backdrop in terms of other conversations that could drive um, what this ultimately looks like moving forward. I think student loan payments coming due is gonna be a big part of that. And with respect to prospects for passage, I don't profess to be an expert on uh, where progressives stand on some of these issues. 
but there does appear to be a, a fairly clear division among Democrats between those who would simply flush another three or four hundred billion into Obamacare and those who want to create a public option, impose uh, federal price controls on drugs, um, put more people into a, the, the, uh, a Medicare program that is uh, fastly going bankrupt. And um, so part of the the issue on healthcare is how do you put together a package that can uh, can hold uh, can hold Democrats together? I don't see a whole lot of prospect for bringing in a a, a lot of uh, a lot of Republican votes. So um, a, assembling a product that can move through Congress, at least on the healthcare side, remains a little bit problematic. I believe. That's a helpful perspective. And we are drawing close to our hour. So I'm going to wrap this up with a few concluding comments. As Lindsay said, and others have echoed, this the, the price tag of this plan is breathtaking, particularly in the perspective of uh, the extraordinary expenditures that have been happening in recent months and that are proposed on the table right now. Uh, but beyond that, it is the character of the assistance that is both mismatched to the diversity of needs of American families and changing the character of how we think about social need and community and family in America. Uh, so it is dramatic and breathtaking in that regard as well. We have better proposals, we have better track record in terms of what is best for assisting uh, Americans, uh, Americans in need, uh, low-income Americans, uh, uh, middle-class American families, and our communities in general. We do invite you to continue to follow the work of these experts and others at the Heritage Foundation who are following the American Families Plan. We'll have much more to say about it as the debate progresses. Uh, I want to thank you uh, panelists for being a part of our event today. You can see their contact information on the screen as we close up. And I, I want to invite you to continue to be in touch with us to uh, continue the conversation about these important issues. And directly after the conclusion of this event, you will receive a survey asking for your input about what kinds of events would help equip you to participate in public de debate about the important ideas for our uh, country's future. We invite you to submit that proposal and to consult heritage.org slash events for the, the live events that are already on the calendar. Thanks for joining us today. And thanks again to all our panelists. Goodbye.